welcome and thank you for joining us for another episode of KPMG's Inside International Tax. I'm your host, Gary Scanlon, a principal in KPMG's Washington National Tax International Tax Practice and formerly an attorney advisor at the Treasury Department. In a prior episode of the podcast, dubbed the Credit Crunch, we explored the foreign tax credit regulations that were issued in December of last year. We discussed the technical aspects of these regulations, including the rules relating to the credibility of foreign taxes under sections 901 and 903. In this episode, we are going to delve into the practical implications of the foreign tax credit regulations, with a particular focus on the types of foreign taxes that are potentially non-creditable because of these regs. For this discussion, I'm joined by two of my colleagues here at KPMG, Seth Green and Danielle Rolfus, who co-head KPMG's WNT International Tax Practice. Seth and Danielle, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Carrie. It's always great to be here. Great to be back, Gary. As we discussed in the credit crunch, the new FTC regulations were primarily intended to target novel extraterritorial foreign taxes, such as digital services taxes or the UK's diverted profits tax. Treasury viewed these taxes as inconsistent with the traditional norms of international taxation as reflected in the Internal Revenue Code. But in practice, the FTC regulations are likely to deny creditability for a significantly broader swath of foreign taxes than DSTs and DPTs. We have since seen multiple comment letters directed to Treasury challenging different aspects of the final regulations, including their validity. More on that later. But these regulations are currently the law for foreign taxes paid or accrued in tax years beginning on or after December 28th, 2021. So many calendar year taxpayers have had to assess the impact of these regulations on foreign tax credits claimed for purposes of Q1 financial reporting. And these taxpayers won't get much help from the government in their assessment. Treasury and the IRS have made it clear through public statements that they won't be issuing an angel list of good taxes or a blacklist for the bad ones. So it'll be the responsibility of each taxpayer to analyze each foreign tax paid or accrued to determine credibility under the FTC regs. In the case of a foreign tax paid or accrued directly by a U.S. taxpayer, for example, a withholding tax on a payment to the taxpayer from a foreign affiliate, a tax that would be non-creditable under the FTC regulations may nonetheless be creditable under a U.S. tax treaty. Treasury regulations, after all, can't override our treaties. But for all other taxes, taxpayers will just have to do the legwork and analyze the taxes for credibility under the regulations. So there are many types of taxes that could be problematic under the final regs. But let's start with the taxes on non-residents and specifically withholding taxes. We talked in the credit crunch about the attribution requirement, formerly known under the proposed regs as the jurisdictional nexus requirement. Under the attribution requirement, a foreign tax must be assessed on gross receipts that are properly attributed to the taxing jurisdiction. For non-residents, income must be attributed to the jurisdiction based on activities, property, or source 
most withholding taxes to be creditable will have to satisfy source base attribution, which requires that the sourcing rules of the foreign tax law imposing the withholding tax be reasonably similar to the sourcing rules in the Internal Revenue Code. Seth, what type of withholding taxes could raise red flags under the standard? Well, Gary, I, I'd like to be able to say, based on kind of your introduction and the point that we were told these regs were motivated by, quote, novel extraterritorial tax systems, I, I, I'd like to say that the only thing that's going to be a red flag here would be some new novel tax like a DST. That's pretty clearly not the case. For example, a number of countries have withholding taxes for certain kinds of services provided to their residents, that even if the services are provided from overseas, a payment for those services may be subject to withholding. There was even an example showing that as a potentially creditable 903 tax under the regulations that preceded these regs, the, the, the regs that date back to the 80s. So a number of countries have that kind of a of a regime. Luxembourg does, Nigeria does, Chile does. And, you know, these aren't new fangled things. These are things we've known about for years. Now, the U.S. often negotiates these taxes out of existence in, in the treaty negotiation that the, the tax won't get imposed because the U.S. permits business profits to be taxed only if there's a permanent establishment by the other jurisdiction. But it can still be an issue in terms of foreign to foreign payments or payments that for some other reason aren't covered by the treaty. In addition to service payments, the regs are really explicit that royalties must be sourced based on place of use of the underlying IP. And in fact, many, many countries, again, including many treaty partners, source royalties based on the residence of the payor, just like we source interest based on the residence of the payor. In fact, if you look at OECD commentary, you'll see that you know there's a very widespread use of this sourcing methodology. I, I don't mean to suggest that the U.S. treatment is entirely an outlier. There are other countries that have the same result, but I don't think the U.S. rule is the majority rule. So to suggest that all these other countries which apply a residence of the payor standard, that they're the outliers, I think is just factually not correct. The regulations provide that for purposes of determining whether the sourcing rules of the foreign tax law are reasonably similar to the U.S. sourcing rules, the character of gross income is determined under the foreign tax law except that the sale of copyrighted articles must be treated as a sale of tangible property. Seth, what are the practical implications of this character rule? I'm not sure it's entirely clear, but it sure seems to be telling us that words matter tremendously, and I would suggest in peculiar and formalistic ways. So I was talking about services and royalties in the prior section. Imagine two jurisdictions, one of which says, if a foreign taxpayer provides services 
to a country X taxpayer using technology, those services will be subject to tax in country X. Another country, country Y, says if technology is used for the benefit of a country Y taxpayer, any amount paid by country Y in respect of that will be treated as a royalty. We could, under those two statutes, have the same identical activity that the U.S. would characterize as the provision of a service. In both cases, it would be subject to a royalty-style withholding tax based on place of use. That would be fine, assuming it's place of use for royalties in country Y, that would be fine if it is respected as a royalty, even though the U.S. sees it as a service, if we allow the country Y characterization of that amount as a royalty to control, we have a creditable withholding tax. But over in country X, their law, as I articulated it, calls this thing a service. It just says we're going to withhold on this service as if it were a royalty. That would seem to suggest that the tax is non-creditable. Or maybe a deeming rule is okay, but country Z doesn't even use a deeming rule. Country Z just says if technology is used to provide a service to a country Z resident that benefits its country Z business, you withhold. No deeming rule, but the same substantive rule. So we're basically told that the words the foreign jurisdiction chooses are going to be what controls the outcome rather than that the substance of the rule the foreign country applies controlling the outcome. That's a pretty strange policy choice for the U.S. government to make. And by the way, layer on top of that, the fact that most of the foreign jurisdictions we're looking at, these words we're interpreting are going to be written in a foreign language. So attempting to, to ferret out the nuances, the different meanings of different phrases, and to measure those against the framework that I just described is a remarkably difficult endeavor for U.S. taxpayers and their advisors. So in the credit crunch, we talked about non-resident taxes incurred on gain from the sale of property, including stock. The final regulations explicitly bless foreign levies similar to our FERPTA, under which gain from the sale of U.S. real property or the sale of stock in a corporation that owns a sufficient amount of U.S. real property is treated as income that is effectively connected to U.S. trader business. The regulations also explicitly bless a foreign levy similar to our Section 864C8, which treats a gain from the sale of a partnership interest as ECI to the extent of the gain in the partnership's ECI assets. According to the regulations, foreign levies similar to our FERPTA or Section 864C8 satisfy property-based attribution, which requires that the gross income included in the foreign tax base be determined based on property situated in the taxing jurisdiction. 
Danielle, what foreign taxes are potentially non-creditable under this standard? Well, Gary, we know that a number of countries impose withholding tax on a non-resident sale of stock in a resident company. These new rules require us to evaluate each of those taxes to see whether the foreign law is limited to only imposing that tax on the sale of stock in a company that looks reasonably similar to our real property holding company rules. China, India, Mexico are just a few examples that immediately come to mind as taxes imposed on the sale of resident companies by a non-resident that would run afoul of that standard. Now, here, as in many cases, it's important to run this through a treaty lens. Sometimes U.S. tax treaties actually bless the imposition of these taxes, and other times U.S. tax treaties preclude our treaty partner from imposing the tax on a non-resident. And you'll hear us, I think, coming back, you know, time and again to a question here that the U.S. Treasury has articulated that our U.S. treaty network isn't relevant to a tax that's imposed on a non-resident as opposed to a resident of the U.S. A non-resident's not entitled as a general matter to claiming treaty benefits. So in addition to evaluating whether the company that is being sold is being subject to tax under a rule that is reasonably similar to our standards for real property holding companies, you also need to consider whether a U.S. tax treaty might potentially either turn off that tax or commit the U.S. to giving a credit for that tax. I will say, though, I've been surprised to learn how widespread these taxes are, that other countries like France, Germany, Japan, and Luxembourg also impose these kinds of tax. But I want to highlight another point. We've talked so far about the situation where these taxes are imposed as a withholding tax. And in that case, you're able to evaluate that particular imposition of tax as a separate levy so that even if it's not creditable, it doesn't run the risk of tainting the credibility of other taxes. But we have also learned that in some jurisdictions, and here I'll call out Japan as an example, the capital gains tax on the sale of shares appears to be imposed through the Japanese corporate income tax that applies to non-residents. So their version of our ECI regime, our regime for taxing the effectively connected income of a non-resident in the United States, includes within it the Japanese tax on the sale, on the capital gains tax by a non-resident. That carries with it the possibility that that tax could be viewed as tainting the credibility of the Japanese corporate income tax on non-residents, since that tax may fail the attribution requirements under the regulations. For a tax on residents, satisfying the attribution requirement is pretty straightforward. The base of the tax can include worldwide gross receipts of the resident. The only requirement is that these gross receipts must be determined under arm's length 
principles. Danielle, where have we seen this come up as an issue? I think Brazil has become the poster child for this issue. In particular, Brazil is in, currently in the process of trying to accede to membership at the OECD. And as part of that process, there's been an explicit discussion that Brazil doesn't currently follow the arm's length standard and would need to get on board with that standard in order to become an OECD member country. So it's really hard to stretch the meaning of the arm's length standard as potentially including Brazil. Up to this point, we've focused on the attribution requirement, which was newly adopted in the proposed and then final regs. But another aspect of the final regulations is causing a lot of consternation among taxpayers, the cost recovery requirement. Now, the cost recovery requirement existed as part of the net income requirement in the old regs, but were made significantly more stringent by the final rules. Under the final regulations, a foreign tax satisfies the cost recovery requirement if the tax permits recovery of significant costs and expenses. Whether a cost or expense is significant is generally a facts and circumstances determination. The regs specify that a cost or expense is significant if, for all taxpayers in the aggregate to which the foreign tax applies, the cost or expense constitutes a significant portion of the taxpayer's total costs and expenses. But the regs also include a per se list. Costs and expenses related to capital expenditures, interest, rents, royalties, wages, or other payments for services, and research and experimentation are always treated as significant costs or expenses. Importantly, disallowance of a significant cost or expense is not necessarily fatal if such disallowance is consistent with the principles underlying the disallowances required under the code, including disallowances intended to limit base erosion or profit shifting. Danielle, what are the practical implications of the cost recovery requirement? Well, yeah, I have to say that this part of the regulations has caused a tremendous amount of hand-wringing by advisors and companies alike trying to apply these rules. As you know, there is a per se list of expenses that the corporate income tax must allow in order for it to remain creditable. There is this important exception where you can tie a denial of the deduction to a principle that we can find in the U.S. Internal Revenue Code, including a principle of protecting the base, but that's not always easy to do. So I think I think you can divide the, the hand-wringing that's taking place in this area maybe into two categories. The first is where under foreign law, one of these per se categories, there's just a percentage haircut on that deduction. So for example, interest is one of the per se categories, but the German trade tax doesn't allow full interest deductions. And that denial extends even to interest paid to unrelated parties. 25% of all interest, whether the taxpayer has $100 of interest or you know up to whatever amount, 
is denied whether that interest is paid to a related or an unrelated party. It is harder to trace that kind of just categorical denial of a percentage of all interest to a principle in the code. You know, we have the idea of 163J sort of limits the amount of interest you can deduct based on how much income a taxpayer has. You can find in the Section 385 regulations concern about, you know, debt versus equity characterization or debt that's not being incurred to finance new investment. But just a categorical denial of a percentage of interest that's paid even, you know, to unrelated parties and even in a context of a taxpayer that may have very little interest expense relative to their income, it is really hard to find that principle in the U.S. code. Another example could be in Argentina, there's evidently a 20% haircut on all royalty payments. Hard to there to try to analogize that kind of a disallowance to something that we have under the U.S. Internal Revenue Code. The other broad category um, where we have struggled in this per se list of deductions is where rather than just taking a haircut on you know, really the category as you find it listed there in the regulations, there are a number of foreign laws where some subcategory of that amount gets a special treatment. For example, we have learned that in the Netherlands, there is, under certain circumstances, limitations on the deductions for stock-based compensation. Well, one of the per se categories is wages. And at least under U.S. law, stock-based compensation is a part of wages. Does that kind of special treatment of a subcategory raise an issue because that per se wage category, there is no sort of de minimis exception, somewhat surprisingly made available. We've also been struggling with, in Mexico, there is a denial of cost recovery deductions for goodwill. But of course, it's never that simple. It appears that if it's goodwill that is generated in an unrelated party transaction, it may be that taxpayers are able to put that expenditure, put that cost basis against other identifiable assets. And in related party transactions, because of these concerns about the ability to deduct goodwill, taxpayers have tended to use stock sales where this issue isn't presented. This is a good example of where even just getting to the bottom of what the foreign law treatment of goodwill is, is really very challenging. And it can be complicated by the fact that maybe that law is not very well developed. Another point to make here that it makes this challenging is there does again seem to be the idea in the regulations here of at least some ability to defer to the foreign law characterization of an expenditure. So one question that's come up is if Mexico just doesn't recognize goodwill as a capital expenditure, are, are we okay under the regs? Because maybe you can argue that 
the foreign law hasn't denied a deduction for a cost because foreign law doesn't see there as having been a capital expenditure. And therefore, somehow you are nonetheless okay. But I think, you know, these are just a couple of examples where we have struggled. And it's it's quick to see that the fact that the regulations include these per se categories where you have to allow a deduction don't explicitly contemplate any kind of a de minimis out for these per se categories, but then invite the taxpayer to, at some level, defer to foreign law characterization or to trace a disallowance to a principle that we can find in the code that may be executed in a very different way in our code, but if it's getting at the same kind of policy concern, are you able to still conclude that you're okay? This is all the what I meant when I said a lot of hand-wringing taking place, and I think this is an area that, you know, in the very beginning when the regs came out, we focused a lot on the withholding taxes but in the last couple of months, that focus has largely shifted to trying to understand the nitty gritty detail of these foreign laws and any deduction disallowances that might exist. Thanks, Danielle. And it, and it bears reminding people that the structure of the regs is to disallow an entire foreign tax as a credit, even if an expense you paid was not inappropriately disallowed under the foreign tax law, right? So it is a one tax determination. Yeah, I think it's a great point. You know, this the fact that the German trade tax disallows a percentage of interest deductions has the potential to cause the German trade tax to not be a creditable tax for taxpayers that don't have any interest on their German tax return. It's a one size fits all answer. The tax is either creditable or not for everybody. And it doesn't matter that this particular taxpayer isn't affected by the disallowance. So this would be a good time to turn to the question of validity. As I noted in the introduction, there are many commentators that have questioned the validity of these regs. Seth, what, what are the arguments that folks have presented in favor of invalidity? Well, I mean, I think first it's important to recognize that this argument comes in, in a number of flavors. So, for example, Danielle talked about the difficulty in finding that the Brazilian tax satisfies the arm's length standard. I think there are enough interesting things about the Brazilian tax that even under the old predominant character test, one might have had questions about Brazil. I don't mean to suggest that Brazil was non-creditable before these regs came out. I'm just suggesting that it was not obvious. And so if one were to attack the regs in an attempt to claim invalidity in the context of the Brazilian corporate income tax, that would almost certainly be the most challenging way to, to come at things. But for other countries, we have long-standing 
reasons to believe that their taxes were fine under the predominant character test. We have Congress having made numerous changes to sections 904 and 902 and other credit related provisions with generally favorable references to the pre-existing 901 regs, raising the issue of legislative reenactment, which is a real thing that if Congress has blessed a regulatory regime as consistent with the statutory regime it's interpreting and Congress does not thereafter change that statutory regime, it is much harder to conclude that the regs can then be significantly revised without raising validity concerns. We also have the question of treaties. Now, these rules do not purport to overturn treaties, nor nor could they. But treaties are relevant in a couple of different ways. One is it is the longstanding position of the Treasury Department to only negotiate with countries that have income taxes and to only grant relief from double taxation under the appropriate article of the treaty, things that the United States thinks is an income tax. In fact, in certain circumstances, you may see things called out in a technical explanation or a joint committee report as a, a deviation from that standing policy that occurred only because the US thought they got a really good deal on some other aspect of the treaty. And we have also been informed that the Treasury has effectively told us that they believe the treaties are irrelevant now to deemed paid taxes under Section 960 that might come up with subpart F or guilty inclusions. They, they tell us that to be fair in the context of, I think, telling us that they believe treaties have always been irrelevant to 960 credits, that, that our existing treaties pretty much uniformly refer to deemed paid credits in the context of, quote, dividends, unquote which neither subpart F inclusions nor guilty inclusions are. But at least the spirit of our existing treaties tells us that we have agreed with our treaty partners that deemed paid credits will be available. And so whether the literal language of the treaty requires that or not, there is, I think, a, a certain surprisingness to the government's willingness to assert that that's just irrelevant to any determination. I don't know that a court would necessarily invalidate the regs on, on the basis of that, but I think it would at least give pause. And the amount of pause it would give would also be different depending on the fact pattern. A first tier subsidiary from a treaty country is going to be very different than a 10th tier subsidiary owned through a bunch of, you know, four or five different holding companies, some of whom might not even be in any treaty jurisdiction. Facts matter. So facts matter what country you're looking at if you're outside a treaty. Facts matter what's your structure look like if you're trying to claim relief for a treaty-based position for, for an indirect tax. There is no simple answer to you know validity or invalidity, but certainly these rules upset long-standing expectations, expectations based on authorities and not just based on the government's practice or just based on the prior regulations. And so when those long-standing expectations 
that have a basis in law are upset, validity is certainly a question. Thank you, Seth and Danielle, for joining me today and sharing your valuable insights on the practical implications of the new foreign tax credit regulations. And thank you all for listening. Please share this podcast with others and leave your five-star reviews wherever you listen to this podcast. And please stay tuned for future episodes of KPMG's Inside International Tax to stay up to speed on the latest developments in U.S. international tax. Until our next episode, take care. We'll